Do you want to help wipe out blood cancers? A local group of athletes is raising money to support the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, and you can help. They're training to do an Ironman triathlon. That's a 2.4-mile swim, a 112-mile bike ride, followed by a full marathon 26.2 miles. To donate to the team or learn fun ways to support them, including a night of comedy at the Improv, Contact Sarah at 714-881-0610 or teamtraining.org. Thank you. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer. This is Privacy Piracy, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV. Most of the shows, CNN, NBC, ABC, 48 Hours, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, and she even had her own 90-minute PBS uh, special called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Evening, Mari. Good evening. Who's your guest tonight? Well, one of my heroes, actually. Robert Ellis Smith was one of our very first interviewees back when we started in 2005, and also I interviewed him in 1997 or 1998, many years ago, I guess 10 years ago almost, and I interviewed him about identity theft and privacy issues when I was first doing my identity theft survival kit. And he's always been generous with his time, his energy, and his wisdom. And I'm just so thrilled to have him with us. Let me tell our audience a little bit about him. And uh, his name is Robert Ellis Smith. He is a journalist who uses his training as an attorney to report on the individual's right to privacy. Since 1974, that's 33 years, I guess he's celebrating his 33rd anniversary this year, He has published Privacy Journal. It's a monthly newsletter on privacy in the computer and information age. And he is based in Providence, Rhode Island. In fact, I've been getting that newsletter for probably 10 years myself. And I was in Providence, Rhode Island and got to see that pretty place. Bob Smith is a frequent speaker, writer, and congressional witness on privacy issues. And he's compiled a clearinghouse of information on the subject including such things as computer data banks, credit and medical records, the internet, electronic surveillance, the law of privacy, and physical and psychological privacy. Robert is also the author of Ben Franklin's website, Privacy and Curiosity from Plymouth Rock to the Internet. It's the first and only published history of privacy in the United States. He's also the author of Our Vanishing Privacy, 
and he's the author of The Law of Privacy Explained and Privacy, How to Protect What's Left of It, Work Rights, a book describing individual rights to privacy in the workplace, and The Big Brother Book of Lists. He also is the publisher, as I said before, of Privacy Journal, and he publishes the compilation of state and federal privacy laws, and he updates that yearly. He also has a uh, publication of Celebrities and Privacy and War Stories, a collection of anecdotes on privacy invasions of all kinds. The New York Times says Smith sounds the alarm about maintaining freedom and privacy in the computer age and calls him a principled critic. Privacy Journal is a privacy watchdog, according to the Times, and the paper of record for lawyers and others interested in privacy rights, according to the U.S. News and World Report. Bob has been asked to write the definitive statement on privacy in the last two editions of the World Book of Encyclopedia. He has appeared on three networks morning news programs, as well as Face the Nation, Nightline, and All Things Considered. He's a regular commentator on Marketplace on American Public Radio, and we're so thrilled that he is joining us here at KUCI again. So to learn more about him, by the way, you can go to privacyjournal.net and even see the journal and get a free copy and and get your own copies as well. So welcome, Bob. Thank you for joining us from the East Coast. Thank you, Marie. It's really uh great pleasure to join you. I know you've been terrific to me for many years in, in keeping me informed and being a, a real sage for us in the area of privacy. So, and I I forgot to say that you also now are doing um, a column for, for Forbes magazine, right? Yes, Forbes uh, website, Forbes.com. Yes. Ter- it's a new outlet. Yeah, it's a good chance to sound off about some privacy issues. Right. So I've been reading those as well as the journal. Bob, for 33 years, can you believe it? It is hard to believe. <laughs> yeah, you've been publishing Privacy Journal. How is it that you started the journal at that time, and what were the concerns back then? The concerns back then were major uh, computer systems, huge central processing units, huge databases that would collect information on people. And, of course, the, not many people gave much thought to the accuracy of that information or giving people access to it to, to make sure that their information was correct. The government was just using computers in a big way. and uh, Nobody anticipated, I think, that computer power would be in the hands of individuals the way it is now. Certainly nobody anticipated the Internet, and nobody anticipated uh, email either. Those all came in the early 1990s and uh, changed the uh, complexion of the issue a lot. Maybe that's the reason I've been able to ha- hang in there so long. As, as you know, the issue does change its uh, complexion uh, as we go along. And it's amazing because, you know, and back 33 years ago, uh, I didn't even have a computer, you know. Right. <laughs> and, and I remember being on a school board in the early 80s and buying a computer for the school district, you know, which was costing us, you know, probably millions of dollars, and, and it took up an entire room, and I'm sure it didn't even hold half as much as I have on my own computer. Right. And it, it was said back there in the 80s that all of the computers in use could probably fit into, let's say, the Los Angeles Coliseum. And um, it was said in the late 1990s that that was probably still true of all the computers uh, because they were so small. I don't think that's possible now. <laughs> but uh, during the midpoint there somewhere, 
uh, you know, because computers became so miniaturized, you could still fit them all in a, a huge stadium. So, so what was the impetus to have this? Have you get started on privacy? What was there some kind of privacy invasion that you saw, or was it just a a higher consciousness that you had? What was it? <laughs> well, it was an interest in the law. I think I, I went to law school at night, and I wanted to combine that with my career as a journalist. And I thought that, uh, and I took a course in privacy that was kind of rare in law schools, and it just really excited me, the conflict between the free press and the individual's right to privacy. Um, and I thought, I've, after I got into it, I discovered two things. One, that there were no advocates for this point of view, that uh, there were plenty of advocates and organizations for a free press and for access to government information and for efficient government and for strong law enforcement, but no advocates for protecting the individual's right to privacy. And I also discovered that credit bureaus, which had the, they were the main uh, purveyors of personal information at that point, they just didn't have the same discipline I had with regard to uh, making sure you got information accurate before you reported on people. Uh, none of the uh, uh, disciplines and, and rules that I learned about checking accuracy and making sure you didn't report on people if you weren't totally sure about the information. I was just appalled by that. I could not believe that uh, large companies could make money without uh, checking on the accuracy of the information that they were peddling. So those were the two factors. You know, Bob, that was the time, really, that that Congress was looking at the Privacy Act, right? 1974, isn't yeah, that exactly. It? it was passed uh, a month after I started. Right. So you were right in there. <laughs> I was. Yeah, yeah, right as the pioneer. I mean, that's when they were talking about, you know, information privacy, right? And that's Right. And it came on the heels of Watergate, of course, which created a lot of uh, privacy abuses. Right. I remember watching those Watergate hearings when I was, you know, in college. and see, or Actually, I had just graduated college. So I was seeing all of that stuff going on and, and seeing that there was a push towards privacy at that time. And that's when they uh, created right near there. Wasn't that around the time that the uh, Fair Credit Reporting Act uh, passed as well? It actually came before Watergate. Uh, it was really the first uh, privacy law in in the world, I think, uh, giving you rights to see information about yourself and uh, and uh, expectations that it would be kept confidential and used only for special reasons. Um, the, the abuses were just incredible, and people didn't even know credit bureaus existed, much, and they had no right to see the information. So Senator Proxmire got that passed in 1971, and at that point it was a radical idea that, that consumers actually had a right to see information and, and to correct it. In, in fact, the the first law didn't give you the right to see the information, but just be told about it. <laughs> so it's kind of hard to correct it. And <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And, and, of course, you had to pay for it then. Now it's free. Right. Yeah. Free once a year, at least. Yes. Okay. So how has the definition of privacy changed over those 33 years? Well, I think the emphasis has. Uh, pri privacy uh, has always been uh, two things, I think. The, the right to control information about yourself um, and to make sure that it's accurate and to have some measure of control over what organizations are going to get it, uh, and, and after you've given it up to one organization, who else is, is going to get it? And then the right of, uh, of physical uh, solitude and physical space, the right to have um, uh, to be free in some safe haven from uh, from intrusion. Uh, then I think uh, as years came by, there was another uh, emphasis, even though the, the definition was always there, and that's privacy as autonomy. Uh, the right to travel freely within our society, the right to come and go as you please without being tracked, 
by government without having unreasonable restrictions on your uh, travel from place to place. So, um, and I, I think in the 1990s and, and in our current decade, we have a fourth consideration too, which is the the identity of where you are, your location. That's entitled to privacy protection as well. That's not not quite the same as uh, a privacy interest in in information about you. It's not you're not protecting your credit report or your social security number or your medical information. You're really protecting where you are at the moment. And as you know, there are lots of devices and systems that allow for both the government and businesses to to have access to where you are right now. Uh, cell phone uh, calling is, is one very good example. Uh, ATM cards are another example. There's a lot of technologies that allow uh, organizations to keep track of where we are right now. And the protection against that, the defense against that, is a right to privacy as well. So, in short, I would say four things: uh, the right to protect what where your location is currently, the right to move freely uh, and to make free choices about yourself without undue uh, restrictions, the right to, or at least try to attempt to control information about yourself, and fourthly, uh, the right to have some safe haven where you're not interrupted, you're not subject to ridicule, you're not even subject to, to accountability. You're just there yourself, and we all need that to refresh ourselves and to think and to meditate and to uh, uh, to, to just be away from the world. It sure has evolved since Brandeis said it was the life to, uh, the right to be left alone, hasn't it? It's just he could not have seen all of the technology issues. I mean, I think he was worried at that time about photographs, right? Absolutely, it was the camera, <laughs> but it's interesting. Yeah, he was worried about the camera and, and the fact that you could snap an image of an individual for the very first time and, and take it out of the control of that individual. But he was right about one thing. It was technology that would drive this issue. Exactly. I loved your article about uh, privacy's godfather, Jerry Ford. You know, just recently I did a speaking engagement in, in Tucson, uh, and this was before Jerry died. And at that time, his son was also speaking on the platform and, and did this wonderful thing about his dad and had, you know, kind of showed how he was in his, I guess, 18, 19, when his dad was, you know, in the White House and kind of told all these great stories and how his dad really cared about the country. And, and I had such a warm feeling about him. And then I read your article and I had a much warmer feeling about him and, and didn't really put it together about him being really um, a a Republican who had such a privacy consciousness. Can you tell a little bit about him so my audience can hear? Sure. I think I said at one point he was the most hands-on president with regard to privacy of any we've had. He was directly involved in, in the issues and developing policy. And This, too, uh, grew out of Watergate. Uh, as a way to pull himself out of Watergate, uh, President Nixon decided that he'd be the privacy president, and he proposed a privacy commission and a whole host of privacy laws, some of which were passed. And a privacy committee was created, and he made his vice president in charge of it. And Ford really didn't have many other issues to pursue, and he pursued that one uh, big time. And, and uh, he brought in his very best friend from Michigan to be the executive director. Uh, and uh, he attended a lot of conferences where privacy people attended, and he made a real effort to reach out and understand the issue and develop it. And he, um, he was concerned about disclosure of Social Security numbers and disclosure of government information and inaccurate government information. And many of the laws that were developed uh, were first developed with uh, that privacy committee and really have a lot of uh, Jerry Ford's fingerprints on them. 
And now it's, it is pretty amazing. I, I think he wanted not only for the Privacy Act to cover um, governmental agencies, I think he wanted to extend it to private enterprise. Isn't he that did, correct? Yeah. yeah, I think that's what you had said. So that was amazing to me. And it never, you know, he wasn't in long enough to make that happen. Right. There just wasn't enough sentiment for that. But he, he, was, he was pushing that. Those are, in many ways, the good old days for privacy uh, advocates because we had uh, somebody in the White House uh, who would listen and who really shared the concern. Uh, we haven't had that since, and it was pretty remarkable. Uh, I also think it was uh, uh, sim- symbolic of, of Ford's general approach to government, which was to get involved and to, and to weigh issues on the merits. Uh, I, uh, there weren't a whole lot of political considerations that entered his decision-making when he became president. No. He was a very political man in the House, but I think when he became president, he decided to uh, decide issues on the merits. I know. And, you know, it was interesting when his son was talking about him. When he decided to pardon Nixon, he really did it for the, go- for the country, to just get over it and move on, you right. know, because otherwise it was going to tear everybody apart. And he knew it was the death knell for him. That's what, you know, he, his son had said. Everybody told him, it's your death knell, don't do it. And he did it anyway. And, and at the time, Edward Kennedy just made a big deal about it, how bad he was for doing that. And then he said uh, that his father's greatest victory was, you know, several years ago when Edward Kennedy gave him an award at the Kennedy Senator's Senate, I mean, excuse, excuse me, at the Kennedy Center, telling him that, you know, he was right and Kennedy was wrong, that he did do the right thing and he did it for the right reasons. And it was, it was very sweet. He was, um, he was, he was a good guy. Yeah, Just a really, really good guy. Yeah, the Kennedy Center has an award for courage in politics, and it was very appropriate that President Ford got that. Right. So talking about over the years that you've been really one of the gurus of privacy, how has your subscribers changed? Have they at all? Uh, let me think. Uh, of course, there are new professionals that have entered the field. We have this uh, species called a chief privacy officer that most large companies have now and just about all federal agencies have now a person who's in charge of uh, making sure that the organization obeys the laws and answers complaints and uh, considers privacy when they're building new data systems and that that's new and i've got a lot of those people as my subscribers um, the the back then when i started there were a lot of academics who were interested in this issue led by alan weston of columbia university he's now retired but there's been a growing uh, uh, cadre of of academics who are interested in this issue, uh, and and I uh, half my readers are individuals interested in their own privacy and how to protect it, and the other half are corporate people and government people who have a responsibility to to protect records and they need to know uh, about the latest court decisions and the latest uh, laws that, that that affect them. You know, what do you think about this new breed of chief privacy officer? It's a brand, I mean, we've had CIOs, you know, chief information officers now ever since we've had computers, but this is kind of a new thing, and I belong to the International Association of Privacy Professionals and actually took that test to become certified as a CIPP. So what are you thinking about these certified privacy uh, professionals who are, you know, chief privacy officers? What do you, how do you think that's going to be helpful or not be helpful? I think it will be helpful. I think it's already proven that if nothing more, you have a desk, uh, a privacy desk somewhere that people can go with their concerns uh, for complaints and also a place where the press and 
legislators and others can at least get information out of the company and what its privacy policies are. Um, it's a difficult, tricky job, I think, because the the reason I like the issue and I haven't grown bored over the years is that it's interdisciplinary and it involves technology and law and sociology and consumer affairs and uh, government, uh, international affairs, uh, a, a lot of different aspects to the privacy package. And the privacy officer has to have a little knowledge of all of those. And he has to have, uh, I think, the approval of the person at the top to delve into all manner of divisions within the company and to, and to demand change uh, and to demand compliance with, with both new laws and, and just mandates that are, that are coming along. It's not one-dimensional, and I'm not sure whether there's one qualification for a chief privacy officer could be a lawyer, could be a technologist, it could be even a public relations person, uh, it, it could be uh, a, a, an expert in organizational uh, functions, but the, I think the key part is that you have to have the ear of the chief executive officer and the support of that person to uh, delve into all different aspects of the company. Yeah, you know, that's really interesting because I, I um, have a lot of times that I'm interacting with uh, chief privacy officers, and we've had several on this show, as a matter of fact, both in government and in, in corporations. And those that have the ear of the chief, uh, you know, the CEO, um, have a lot more influence than those who report to HR or report under, you know, the CIO or something like that, because it makes a huge difference in terms of, of how they they manage within the corporation and how much uh, they can get along with them. And, you know, they're not seen just as a, uh, you know, the one who's going to be the compliance officer. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's, it's hard. I think but, one of the more successful is Peter Cullen at, at Microsoft, and just after he took over, Microsoft started to nose around and say, gee, maybe we need a, a omnibus privacy law at the national level to protect privacy in all its different aspects, and Microsoft is now pushing that. And I think it's a large measure uh, due, to, due to his uh, foresight. Yeah, they're doing a good job. So what states have the best privacy laws, and, and which ones have the worst? Well, as you may have mentioned, we, we publish a compilation of laws in the states, so we're in a pretty good position to know which ones have the best laws, and, and I follow that up to find out which ones have the Supreme Courts that are most conscious of this issue and which ones have state bureaucracies that have the best uh, records. And uh, we did rankings about two years ago and probably going to do them again, but they're on our website. People can see the rankings. Uh, we we chose, I think it was four tiers, and it, California is head and shoulders above the other states. Yay! <laughs> as, as you know, first of all, it's it's the only state with a really active uh, privacy consumer office uh, and an officer within state government. Secondly, it has the most highly developed uh, collection of laws. It's a uh, law that requires a company to report to the public and to the individuals affected if there's a leak of data that's it's, they're called security uh, breach notification laws. California's was the first. It led to that disclosure at Hewlett Packard last summer, and uh, and, it, and it, Choice Point in 2005. Absolutely, yeah. Those yep. national companies had to comply with the uh, state law, and now we have, I think, a third of the states or more have duplicated the law. We don't have a federal law yet along that way, but we're moving there. We're, we're yeah. getting there. Uh, 
And uh, yeah, California, California really did. set the standard. We we really did. I mean, although some of the laws are a little bit different, we pretty much set the standard for the country and and got everybody because of our law. Um, it, it really did affect the rest of the country and, and made it so that the rest of the citizens in the rest of the country would hear about it. Because remember when Choice Point didn't want to tell any other citizens except California citizens and all of the attorney generals just blew up and said, wait a minute, you're a national company. you got to tell about our people, too. Right. And so that really, uh, you know, because we have been so privacy conscious in this state, it really has been a benefit to the rest of the country, I think. Yeah, it has, and this has been a 20-year trend. Let me mention some of the other states that have good records. Washington uh, does, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Wisconsin, uh, Minnesota, I would say, ranks uh, second. Um uh, Illinois, uh, those are the states that are most progressive in privacy protection. Now, Wisconsin was the second state to institute an Office of Privacy Protection. They came out, actually, to our office and got training from, from our office on how to set up their own. So they, they're, they've they been, through the years, they've been privacy conscious as well. Right. Yeah. I, I have to say Canada is, is leading the way right now. I mean, they, their provinces and the federal government are, are I think, ahead of the U.S., and protection for privacy. Oh, yeah. We had Ann Kovikian on our show, and um, she, you know, she's one of the commissioners from Ontario. She's, right. yeah. So, yeah, they've been, we've had a lot of Canadians on, and a lot of them actually are po- listening to our podcast. So we're thrilled about that, too. Oh, good. Yeah, they're great. Yeah. So I hate to ask you, but who are the worst? Oh, which, Texas which? Uh, really pulled up the uh, bottom <laughs> a couple years ago. They've gotten a little better. And uh, South Carolina uh, was one of the worst. And uh, beside that, I would say the southern states, uh, the old Dixie states, uh, are pretty weak in privacy. Uh, Even the conservative streak of the politics there doesn't translate into concern about personal privacy. You know, recently Arizona uh, refused to pass the security uh, freeze law, and they are in the top three for the most identity theft victims. So, I mean, that one, they should really get on your bad list, I'll tell you that, <laughs> at least uh, in my yeah, view. Yeah, and uh, I, I happen to think it's coincidence, but uh, Arizona is a leader in identity theft, yes, and it also is a leader in posting uh, court records on the World Wide Web, which in, a lot of times include Social Security numbers. So There is some correlation, right? Well, I, who knows? It, it might be its proximity to... Uh, undocumented uh, immigrants. I don't know. But it, it, social security numbers are more readily available in that state than anywhere else. Yeah, and, and then they're refusing to allow victims or even non-victims like we have. Consumers can put a security freeze on even if you're not a victim, and they just won't even let victims put a security freeze on their credit reports if they've been exposed to a security breach or anything like that. It just blew me away. Yeah. Privacy is one area where your protections do depend on where you live. It's unfortunate, huh? Okay, so how about the... Well, maybe not if you live in California, I guess. Right, right. I'm so (laughs) glad I'm here. (laughs) So tell me about the countries. You talked about Canada leading the way, and they're part of the European Union. What other countries do you think are really at the top? Well, in a recent study, I believe Germany and Australia were rated pretty well, this study that came out of England. Uh, The United Kingdom leads the world in surveillance cameras, and they're pushing madly towards a, a national ID card, and uh, the, so they're, they're regressing. Um, as you know, the, the European countries all are required by treaty to uh, pass very strong privacy laws. That they call it data protection there. 
and these affect all records, regardless of whether it's a mom-and-pop store or IBM, and whether they're computerized or not. And uh, they all have to be registered with the government. They they have to have a an overseer or a privacy overseer. They have to uh, make the records available to individuals. They have to announce what data systems they have. And they have to give people a right to correct information. And very significantly, all of these laws say that before you take personal information out of this country, you have to assure us that the receiving country has strong privacy laws as well. And that's been a real bone of uh, negotiations between the United States and the European nations. And uh, it hasn't been resolved satisfactorily And because there are some areas where the United States doesn't have protections as strong as Europe, yet a lot of that information is still being exported to the United States. Yeah, and it makes it is a problem for our global economy, for the corporations who have to deal with it. They have to have special contracts or do, you know, certain things that that are not they're very cumbersome because here in our country, the companies can sell our information unless we opt out. Right. And there, the companies can't sell their information unless they opt in. So, right. you know, we got this whole crazy thing here. Yeah. But um, so tell me, we were talking a few minutes ago about the HP scandal, and, and I know you've written a lot and talked a lot about pretexting. Let's talk a little bit about what happened with HP. I, we've talked about it on this show, but maybe someone who hasn't been listening and doesn't know about it. And how did this whole issue of pretexting work, and what has happened with the laws? Sure. Uh, so in the boardroom of Hewlett-Packard, which is in the Bay Area, um, some members of the board suspected that some, uh, shall we say, whistleblowers on the board were leaking information to news reporters. And so the board chair and others... Uh, conspired to hire private investigators to find out what phone numbers were being dialed by the members of the board who were the whistleblowers. They wanted to see if they were talking to news reporters. Uh, so they hired these private investigators who then um, go to phone companies. They simply call them up and pose as the individual and say, I want to know all the numbers that I've dialed over the last month. And they, so they're pretending to be somebody else, and that's called pretexting. And at the time, it was legal. It is, uh, as a general matter, uh, frowned upon and thought to be an unfair business practice. And some states can uh, take action based on that principle. But the black and white law never really specifically um, uh, made it illegal. Um, why companies, phone companies give out that information, I don't know. They could easily call back and give it to the customer. They could mail it to the customer's billing address. And besides, you have that information on your bill anyway. I, exactly. I just can't imagine why a phone company would give up that information to somebody who calls up and says, I'm your customer and I need to know what phone numbers I dialed on the 15th of last month. Yeah. But anyway, they do give up that information and some companies sell it online. It's, it's a big sale in uh, the, the um, identity of phone numbers. <coughs> Excuse me. And, and we're not talking about the content of the call, but we're talking about the numbers dialed to the phone or from the phone. Um, and of course, but you can find out who it was, and that was the whole idea of the HP scandal, is that they they wanted to find out uh, the, the board, some members of the board, and, and probably the CEO and the in-house counsel wanted to find out who was leaking to the journalists, so they got the journalists' uh, phone calling records as well as the uh, phone calling records of some of the board members. Yeah, exactly. And, and then they could match. 
Now, while this was going on, there were plenty of uh, companies, that, little small companies, that were getting this information and reselling it, and states were starting to pass laws prohibiting that. And now 15 states uh, do prohibit it. Um, the prosecutor in California uh, filed criminal charges against Hewlett-Packard people and their investigators, but those charges were dropped, most of them. Some of the misdemeanors uh, stuck. But um, prosecutors have a hard time uh, making criminal charges in that instance un- unless we have these laws passed. It was all, there was an effort to pass one at the federal level. Senator Feinstein's been pushing that. It may come this year. It didn't come last year. Um, it's a practice that never should have been allowed. Um, the Federal Trade Commission and the Federal Communications Commission uh, interpret current law as saying you can't do it. So they do go after some people for doing it. It is a deceptive practice, and it is identity theft. It's a form of identity takeover to just say, you know, I'm I'm Bob Smith's wife or something, and give me, you know, my Bob Smith's telephone record. Yeah, and it's clearly unethical, I think. Absolutely. We're speaking with Robert Ellis Smith, who is an authority on privacy for 33 years. He is the publisher of Privacy Journal. He's an attorney. He's an expert, and he is a sage on the issue of privacy. So we're thrilled to have him all the way from Providence, Rhode Island. Let's talk about the Real ID Act. I don't think people understand all the dangers and what's going on with the fights in the states. Could you tell my audience what the Real ID Act is and what it means to us? Yeah, it's a totally unnecessary federal law that was passed in 2005, just a couple months after we passed an Immigration Reform Act that pretty well tightened up uh, some of the ID requirements in the country. But Real ID, which is an acronym... uh, requires a uniform driver's license throughout all the states by 2008. It requires certain information that must be presented to get a driver's license or a renewal, including uh, documents that have to be produced, like birth certificates and the like. And uh, then it also requires the states to join a national database so that they can exchange information about their licensed drivers. It's extremely costly. Congress didn't uh, uh, appropriate much money at all to... Uh, implement it so the state motor vehicle departments don't like it at all and privacy people don't like it at all. Uh, there's a bit real act, a uh, real push now to repeal it uh, now in the Democratic Congress, and I think that has a real possibility of going through. Uh, the senator from Hawaii, uh, Akaka, and the senator from uh, New Hampshire, Sununu, are pushing to repeal it. Uh, if it's not repealed, uh, there'll be some reform there, I think. Uh, the Department of Homeland Security just issued regulations under the existing law, and nobody seems to like those either. Um, It's going to change things a lot, including the line uh, at the Motor Vehicle Department to get a a renewal. Um, The danger of it is that it will be, uh, uh, well, the handle in the law is that for federal purposes, uh, you have to have one of these newfangled driver's licenses. And uh, the danger is that it will become an all-purpose piece of plastic that you have to carry everywhere you go, whether you're jogging or you're going to the corner store or you're in the library or you're at the beach or anywhere. You would be expected to carry it and present it upon demand. And uh, it just gives too much authority to police officers and others to demand it when you're uh, not uh, doing anything suspicious. And uh, It will radically change our society in uh, in. Uh, requiring that everybody has to give a good account of themselves when they're just doing law-abiding activities uh, along our city streets. And that's that's the great danger of it. The second danger is that it 
marginalizes people who are on the fringes of our society who don't have any known address or won't have a safe place to put their card or if they have one it'll be easy prey for uh, uh, criminals to, to steal it because there'll be a great premium to get it and then we'll start to depend on it too those stolen cards will have value in our society and allow people to get on airplanes and get credit cards and get jobs and get into federal buildings and all alike and and that's the, the other danger of it that um and and it, also aren't we worried about them having the biometric information on it and and RFIDs the radio frequency identifiers in those as well sure. that, that's a huge issue i know that senator Simidian out here in california he was on our show just recently and trying to get laws passed to make it um, so that that our uh, Department of Motor Vehicles cannot put in uh, radio frequency identifiers into the driver's license because they're not safeguarded. Yeah, the senator's doing a great job on privacy. Oh, he's, he's wonderful. Uh, the efforts of Senator Bowen very, very strongly. Yes. Uh, and th- that is a problem. These high-fangled uh, identity uh, biometric uh, technologies will be incorporated into this uh, new all-purpose card. I think what you said was so important because if we have the RFIDs in there and we have the biometrics in there, you're you're absolutely right that getting a hold of those cards could be, you know, I mean, this is a great way to steal identity. Right. And if they can be read, for example, we have all this technology for radio frequency identifiers without any safeguards. And if these things can be read from 30 feet away or who knows how far away, then bad guys can read them as well, right? And and they can see what we're carrying on our on our uh, you know our driver's license, right? So um, I I don't think that the public really can keep up with all this technology and understand this stuff, right? And yeah. I mean it's even for us we have to read about this all the time and and keep up with it. Let's go back to talk about the security breaches. Um, we talked about the fact that uh, California has set the standard. So what do you think about these new bills? I think there's five of them that are pending right now uh, in Congress, setting a preemptive approach to uh, security breach notification. What are, what are you thinking about the, the way Congress is handling the uh, supposed federal security breach legislation? Well, it seems that just in the privacy area, mainly, Congress is just really enthusiastic about preempting state laws, and we've got some pretty good ones. I don't think they should have to be preempted. Uh, I think we've seen with California that the the states are capable of coming up with decent laws. They're less complex at the state level. The the reason we don't have a federal law is it it gets very complex. The the federal legislators are, are arguing about what exactly is a security breach and who's affected and whether a company could have a security plan in place and, and therefore would be relieved from the notification requirement or whether a company could decide that certain people are unlikely to be affected and therefore don't have to be notified. And how do you notify them and all this stuff? The, the, you know, 15 states didn't have a problem with all those definitions. We've got two problems on the federal level. It, it gets too complex when Congress gets to work at these things. Uh, and secondly, they always want to preempt, which is they, that invalidates state laws that that might be stronger. I know we felt pretty horrible here in California because our law 
it's like if you if it isn't broken, why fix it? You know, I mean, it's worked for the rest of the country. It's made tremendous difference because many companies have really started to look as da- at data much more carefully and encrypt, starting to encrypt more, use other technology to protect that data just so that they don't have to notify. And if we have preemptive law and a federal law that says, hey, the company itself can decide whether there is a reasonable risk of harm, then who in the heck is, is going to get that kind of disclosure, you know? That's the problem when Axiom and ChoicePoint and uh, LexisNexis had security breaches before the California law. They didn't disclose them. Right. Yeah. So you know, there, there was also a poll done just last year that showed that one in five Americans had been notified of the security breach. That's an astounding figure. Yeah. And we don't even have these laws in every state. <laughs> I know. I know. And we're, we're up to over 150 re- million records that have been gotten into the hands of unauthorized persons since February of 2005 through you know, just about now, over 150 million sensitive records of, of Americans. It's just amazing. that And, and, and identity theft victims are, are really finding out that they might be from a security breach because they, only 10% of the time do they ever find out who really does this to them in the beginning. That's right. So um, I think we have to take it more seriously. Now it's you, astounding to me that companies still are letting employees uh, take laptops home and on, on their travel when they include uh, personal information like social security numbers in them. And we have so much other electronic equipment, you know, the CDs and the little USB plugs. And I was at a data protection conference, and Seagate has a new computer that that automatically encrypts the hard drive. It's not software. It's, so if someone steals it, they they cannot get it, take the uh, hardware out and put it in another computer. It'll still be encrypted. So, you know, that's that's some technology that's going to help it. But I think the problem is, is that you've got business people who are carrying these laptops around and they are just real, uh, they're a target. They're just a target. Right. So what about the social security number? You've been talking for years about it. It, it has been the, the key to the kingdom of identity theft. So, um, you know, it's also become the ID for credit reporting agencies, hospitals, government agencies, the military. Our grandson is in the Air Force. What do you think he wears around his neck on his dog tag? You know, it's the social yeah. security number. What can we do to protect ourselves, Bob? Um, I think we uh, should insist that we don't give up our social security numbers unless it's absolutely necessary. And people ought to just protect it as much as they can. That's no guarantee, but I think it lessens the possibilities of identity theft, specifically applying for credit. I've applied for credit for years without a Social Security number. and um, uh, There are California banks that uh, will open up accounts without needing a Social Security number because they want to do business with undocumented uh, uh, immigrants. So it can be done. You have to be persistent, but I don't think you need to give it up when you get insurance. And when you apply for a job and when you go to apply for a university, and especially when you apply for credit. Now, that would really help a lot. The second thing is don't carry it around on your person and don't ever give it out over the telephone and don't ever put it up on a website or give it out on a website. Uh, I think the only legitimate demands for Social Security numbers are when the transaction has some tax consequences or if it's uh, Medicare. Those, Those are the only two times, I think, when you ought to give up your Social Security number. And, you know, and you're right, even that should be changed. You know, we've um, talked to Senator Feinstein about getting legislation introduced to get the Medicare number to be an alternate number. 
Why yeah, does it have to be? Yeah, why does it have to be the SSN or the Medicaid or even the military? When I've done programs for the military, they said, "Oh, Mari, 30 years ago, my military number was not my social security number; it was an alternate number." So, yeah, I mean, why do they have to do that? Well, the military switched when the, this wasn't this level of uh, understanding about what the consequences of that were. But a lot of people intuitively knew that uh, one number for each individual had dangerous consequences, but. The military wasn't listening at the time. <laughs> right. How about the push now? Everybody's saying, okay, the Social Security number is out of the bag. Whether you carry it on yourself or not, your doctor has it, your lawyer has it, your accountant has it, your credit card company has it, your bank has it, everybody has it. It's out of the bag. we got to switch to biometrics. What do you think about that? And what about a switch to biometrics? That because the Social Security number is really not a unique number, since everybody has it and you can't really authenticate with it, as they have been doing, the push now is to use a piece of your body, the biometric algorithm, to prove who you are, to authenticate you. What do you think Uh, about that? Yeah, Social Security number essentially is public or semi-public, so it's of no use to authenticate an individual. I think if biometrics are uh, implemented very, very carefully in a pro-privacy way, then they could be an improvement in that they don't tell anything about you. All they do is tell who you are. And uh, it's immutable. It doesn't change. And it's not a number. Uh, So uh, I think it has has some promise. That would be, you know, uh, even a a fingerprint that was embedded into uh, uh, a card electronically, something that you couldn't see but uh, could be read uh, by by a machine that would prove your identity. Uh, I think it would be very convenient on a computer, for instance, to have just a little reader that uh, detected either the, your thumbprint or your hand geometry, and that would be a, a surrogate for a password and certainly a surrogate for a Social Security number. I think the problem is the people that are pushing these systems are not pro-privacy. They're anti-privacy, and they want to do it in oppressive ways. Uh, but... I think if you got the privacy crowd together, they could come up with biometrics that were uh, privacy protective. What I worry about is what if somebody wants to create a uh, credit in my name and they use somehow they're able to capture through some kind of hacking my, my fingerprint and, um, and then open up an account in my name and use it as if, there, if it was theirs. I mean, how would I prove then who I was? Well, I think that does less damage than if they get your social security number where they can use it in several different uh, contexts. Uh, Presumably, there would be institutions, whether credit bureaus or hospitals, that would use different kind of uh, biometric uh, measures. Um, And uh, secondly, if if there was any doubt, uh, at at the point of sale or the point of entry, you could also ask for the same biometric identifier. And the person who had ripped it off uh, wouldn't be able to produce your thumbprint or your hand geometry or your your iris scan. Right, it so is, they'd have is, to match it. Don't, excuse me? Yeah, so they'd have to match it. There'd have to be a match. I wouldn't just be able to give it. I'd that's have right. to like, so it'd be a match. So in any place where you need the physical presence of the individual, uh, it's almost impossible to defeat because the individual would have to present a, 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 a finger or a hand or an eye to a machine and uh, couldn't pass himself off as you. Right. Sounds like Star Trek. (laughs) We're we're talking with Robert Ellis Smith, who is the publisher of Privacy Journal, and he is an author and an attorney and a privacy expert, and he's had the journal for 33 years. 
Uh, and what we're going to talk about now, I, one of the things I really like about your journal is right in the first page there, the first, when you open up, that you have all these questions from readers that you answered. I thought it would be fun if we go over some of those questions that you could answer for our audience. Sure. One of them. Okay, here's one of them that I saw. Can cell phones be tapped? Yes, indeed, they can. Uh, the, uh, the same technology is available to tap those. Okay. Can businesses send recorded ads to cell phones? Yes, they do. And with GPS, uh, which is uh, global positioning uh, technology, they can um, alter those ads depending on where you are. So if you're near a pizza parlor or a particular coffee shop uh, or uh, near a a place of entertainment, then the ad could be geared towards uh, your location. That's what I meant by the new devices now that indicate uh, your your identity. Um, there, you also are entitled to register your cell phone with the federal government if you want to opt out of receiving telemarketing ads. So far, I haven't received any of those, but it looks like it's coming, right? Yes, unless that phone number is registered with a do not call list. Okay. Oh, actually, I do have it with a do not call list when I did the do. So, in other words, if you sign up with a do not call list with the Federal Trade Commission, you won't get those either on your cell phone? That's right. Oh, good. Okay. Yes. What can employers ask you before you get hired? Um, well, they, they can, uh, it's probably easier to say, they, they are allowed to ask for race and ethnic group if that's part of a affirmative action uh, program, as long as they don't use it to discriminate. They can certainly ask for your name and your address and your phone number and whether you are physically qualified for the job and your educational qualifications, um, and uh, they can test you for certain uh, skills. They can even, in many states, can give you what are called honesty tests. It's probably easier to tell you what they can't do. They can't ask about whether you plan to get married or are married, whether you uh, have children or plan to have children. Um, They can't uh, ask your age, um, and um, they can't administer a polygraph test to you. Um, they can't ask, in many states, can't ask your sexual orientation. Um, they uh, cannot ask about most medical information. Um, they, they have to ask all comers about uh, medical information and handicap conditions uh, equally. Um, I suggest that people not give up their Social Security number when they apply for work, but wait till they're, they're given an offer and then, then provide it. Right, and they they cannot get your credit report without you first giving permission. Uh, notification. They have right. to just notify you. Right. The California law may be different on that, but the federal right. law is just they have to notify you that they will pull a credit p- report on you. And increasingly, employers are using credit reports. And and background checks. What do you yes. think about that? Well, some of them are really flaky, I think, and they're they're uh, you know they're they're written by uh, or they're conducted by people who really don't know what they're doing and what they're looking for. Right, and there's so many errors in those. Yes. Yeah. What about the uh, the new ID rules for traveling to and from uh, Canada or Mexico? Yeah, well, if by air you need a passport, and that's been true for several months now, uh, but by uh, surface um, you, uh, you need a driver's license uh, until uh, I think it's next September. That's subject to change, uh, but uh, it, it will be phased in that you'll need a passport, and I think it's wise for anybody who travels to Mexico or Canada to get a get a passport. Um, among other things, a passport does not have your social security number on it, and it doesn't have your address on it. So it's pretty privacy protective when you're waving it around in an airport, unlike a driver's license. Uh, so I think that might be the preferable uh, way to go. So be prepared to have to produce a uh, 
a passport. What about the radio frequency identifiers that they want to put into the passport, the new passports? Well, the Electronic Privacy Information Center, which is the main privacy organization in Washington, uh, has pointed out that they're not secure. You know, right. people can can uh, can spoof them. They can cre- recreate them. Uh, they can create phony uh, RFIDs. I should explain what that is. It's a tiny little chip, much smaller than a piece of rice, that uh, emits uh, a radio signal to a reading device that might be several feet away so that uh, when you go through a checkpoint, it just beeps and identifies you and says you're okay to go through. Uh, but they can be uh, spoofed. They can be hacked. Uh, and uh, they're, they're not a very secure mechanism yet. The passport office wants to go ahead and put them in passports. They, they will fit, can be embedded within a, a piece of paper, a page in a book. Uh, so once again, we're going ahead with this technology without, first of all, testing its reliability, and secondly, building in features that will protect privacy. Um, some nations have shown that you can do both. You can, you can use the technology if you build in certain protections for personal privacy. And so anybody who's listening to this, if you don't have a passport, get one right away before they put the RFIDs in there. I think that's good <laughs> advice, yes. Yeah. How about the no-fly list or the watch list? That has, we're seeing those grow tremendously, and you've, you've written about that many times in, in the Privacy Journal. What, what do you think should happen? This is really a terrible thing because I know a lot of people who are on those watch lists. Well, it's a terrible mess, yeah. First of all, the uh, government and the airlines are using old lists that a lot of a lot of those lists have people on there who just wrote controversial books or gave controversial speeches. Uh, there are a lot of mistaken identity. It's amazing that a person with the name of Edward Kennedy or Joseph Smith would get stopped at an airport on a no-fly list, uh, and then the individual is left to try to prove that they're not that individual. Uh, the government has compiled these lists uh, without, as I said originally, just like credit bureaus, without doing any checking of who these people are and making sure that they get the information accurately. And when you fly in an airplane, whether domestic or foreign, then the airline will check your name against these lists. And uh, sometimes you might be surprised when somebody emerges and says, well, we've got to delay you and inspect your baggage and your person. Uh, technically, it's supposed to mean that you're subject to more scrutiny than the other travelers, but it's meant for a lot of people that they miss their flight. And uh, the, the, the government, the Department of Homeland Security, has not been able to fully implement these no-fly check checkings uh, because they don't have their act together yet. And uh, where they are used, they don't catch terrorists. Now, the reason is I think that we just have not had that many uh, terrorist suspects infiltrating the country. They have picked up a few people involved in pornography and uh, gambling and other international uh, activities, not totally, not incredibly serious crimes, but not a single potential ter- uh, terrorist has been picked up uh, on these checklists. And the scary thing is, is it gets back to that issue of transparency that if you are on a watch list, you can't even see why you're on the watch list. You know, it's right. not like the privacy principles are totally gone. That's right. In spite of the Privacy Act, which does apply here, uh, they don't give you the right to see the information and, and to correct it if necessary. And, yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. So what, what rights do you have with regard to your federal records? What, what rights do you have well, to see the, those? Well, the people that administer the uh, no-flying lists and the airline profiles do claim that they will 
uh, present you with the information they have on you, but I don't think it's available at the airport so that you can resolve it right away. But uh, the Privacy Act, which was passed in 70, 1974, covers all federal uh, agencies except the intelligence agencies. It gives you a right to be told what information is being collected. Somewhere uh, the government has published the lists of all their databases and, and what types of people it has in their databases. You uh, uh, have a right to uh, not have the information transferred to others, whether outside the government or within the government, unless it's for the same purpose for which the information was gathered. You have a right to see the information, to be told if the government has a record on you. You have a right to challenge it and to have the government reinvestigate it and to correct it if they can't uh, prove that the information they have is is correct. Uh, it is a process that gives you some rights. It's very cumbersome. It takes a long time, but people have discovered that uh, it, it can work for them over a course of years. You've got to just prepare for a long battle to get your records and then to get them corrected. And what if you don't get them? I mean, what 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 recourse do you have? Well, many people have gone to gone to court. It means you have to hire a lawyer, of course, but you prove that this was a violation of the Privacy Act, and there are damages that that are available. The state of California has a similar law too for uh, records about people that are in state government agencies. Right. Of course, that doesn't work. I have, <laughs> I have a story to tell you about how I can't get certain records on me that are in a governmental agency. So, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, without suing, yeah it's, yeah, it's it's hard. Yeah, so we only have about a, a minute and a half left, Lloyd says. So I just want you to tell us what, what should our audience be reading and what should they be looking at and uh, to, to learn more about how they can protect their own privacy. Um, well, uh, you mentioned one of my books, that's a, a good history of privacy, I think, called Ben Franklin's Website. And just go to privacyjournal.net and you can read more about that. Uh, Jim Harper of, of the Cato Institute, I think, has a very good book. I wish I had the title at, at, uh, at handy, but uh, he argues against the national ID card. Ann Kavukian, who is the privacy commissioner of the province of Ontario, has two good books uh, about privacy that um, I highly recommend. Um, uh, Amazon has very good listings of privacy books. I would suggest that you go there and just uh, browse through the privacy books that are available. The ones that I mentioned are, are my favorites right now. Yeah. Well, listen, um, give your your website again. And yeah. Go ahead. Thanks. It's privacyjournal.net, and if people go there, they can see uh, excerpts from uh, previous issues of the newsletter, and uh, there's a mechanism there where they can just ask us for uh, a cop- copy of a free sample. We'd be happy to send it. Well, you're terrific. Well, thank you so much for all your time, and thank you for being such a great journalist. I I, I, get, I look forward every month to get my privacy journal and read it and read your Forbes articles as well. So thank you for coming on, and we're going to have to have you on again next year. Thank you. Congratulations on your program. It really helps a lot to spread this information. Congratulations. Well, thank you very much, and you have a great night. Thank you. You've been listening to... Our uh, wonderful guest, the publisher of Privacy Journal, Robert Ellis Smith. He's an author and an attorney, and you can go to his website at privacyjournal.net. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. To learn more about our previous guests and our upcoming guests, and to listen to previous interviews right there uh, with MP3s are right on our website, and to download our podcasts. Also, write us an email about what you want to know about privacy. You can write me at firstmatemari at kuci.org, or just write 
uh, me a note right from the website. You, uh, thank you, Lloyd, for being a great engineer. And listen to us every week from 5 to 6 p.m. right here on KUCI. And go to our website, KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Stay tuned next. And you're going to have some wonderful music with Alec. So join him then. Good night. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.